Hello, and welcome to the third season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode, I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Warren Hoffman. Warren is currently the executive director of the Association for Jewish Studies. He's worked in theater as a critic, producer, playwright, and dramaturg, and holds a PhD in American literature from UC Santa Cruz. He is the author of The Passing Game, Queering Jewish American Culture, and the author of The Great White Way, Race and the Broadway Musical, which will come out in a second edition this Friday, February 14th. We're going to talk today about his book, The Great White Way, specifically whiteness and white identity in musical theater. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Roshana. I'm glad you invited me. Great. Well, let's get started with our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? So my parents took me to see the touring production of 42nd Street when I was nine at the the Playhouse Theater uh, in Wilmington, Delaware. And we sat really way up high. Uh, and they surprised me and my sister. They did not tell us what we're going to do. They said we're going to go see the Nutcracker, which I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that was the cover story, but we got there, and it was Forty Second Street, and I didn't know really what to expect. But to this day, I can still remember, just in my head, exact moments and and, and numbers from the show. What is the last great musical you saw? So I, the last great musical was actually uh, a revival production. I saw right before it closed the Yiddish production of Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. And I was resistant to seeing it um, only because I've seen so many productions of Fiddler. And I, yeah. I thought, do I, do I need to see this? Should I see it? Uh, even though I actually know and understand Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and, that's so funny. And all my friends said, you have to go. You're going to love it. And I said, OK, OK, I'll go. <laughs> And the kicker was, I did love it. It yeah. was, it just blew my mind. So um, it, that production, I mean, Fiddler's already a great show, but the Yiddish really deepens what this show is about and, and, and the sort of cultural life that informs these characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, which writers, either from the past or working today, do you admire most? <sighs> it's such a tough question. There's, yeah. there's a lot of great writing that's happening out there. Um, for me, I think I would, I'd have to go with, with Kander and Ebb, mm-hmm. um, obviously past writers, um, uh, although Kander is still uh, doing work and working with uh, new partners. Mm-hmm. But um, I think what I love about th- their shows is that they do what I want musical theater to do, which is their shows are, of course, very entertaining, but they're not afraid to go to dark places. Right. Um, and while I like a good show like 42nd Street with tap dancing and it's, it's very frothy, um, it's, it's, they show what, what musical theater can do to tell really meaningful stories. Uh, um, Cabaret is my all-time favorite mm-hmm. show. Uh, Chicago is up there, Kiss of the Spider Woman. All those shows, Scottsboro Boys, they, yeah. they take you to, to difficult places and that's what I want theater to do. If you could require our president or government leaders to see one musical not necessarily playing right now, which one would you have them see? 
so since we were talking about Candor and Ebb, yeah. I, I actually would stay with the Scottsboro Boys. Mm-hmm. That's it's a show I talk about in my book, and it's one I saw twice. I saw the day before it closed on Broadway, and then it um, toured a little bit later to Philadelphia when I saw it again. Yeah, and. It's just a musical that floors me um, because it, it's, it's doing so many complex things. It's using the format of the minstrel show, which is already this very fraught um, style of performance, um, extremely racist one, yeah. but it's purposely using it to deconstruct it at the same time, to show the ways in which our judicial system, our, our society, forces African-Americans to perform in minstrel shows off the stage in a way in which uh, people are, are, are forced to sort of perform in, in, in ways that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think showing that and reminding, especially I'll say white politicians and white leaders um, about these things is, is really important. Right. So. Great. Uh, what is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state that you didn't think was possible to get to? I feel like we're going to turn this into the Candor and Ebb episode all of a sudden <laughs> because all my answers are about Candor and Ebb, but um, I have to talk about Cabaret. Mm-hmm. It's, I've seen so many productions of Cabaret. It, it gets me every time, but I'll tell you the real the moment that um, was so powerful. I, I went to see... The uh, makes sense. The original uh, run production of the revival. So right. I saw um, Natasha Richardson mm. and Alan Cumming at when it was still at the uh, Henry Miller Theater right. before it moved to Studio Fifty Four. Oh um, early on, I had rush tickets in the very back. I stood for the whole show, mm-hmm. and I I couldn't believe what I was watching. It was. This interpretation, Sam Mendes' uh, interpretation, this material just floored me. And the moment that sort of just took it to another level, um, I don't think it's a spoiler anymore. The show's production's been around for long enough. But at the end of the show, when the show sort of repeats itself at the cabaret and the uh, MC says, uh, you know, in here, everything is beautiful, even the orchestra is beautiful. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the show, you know, the, the curtains part and you see the orchestra. But at the end of the show, the curtains part, you hear the music, and there's nobody there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the orchestra has disappeared. Of course, this, this reference to the Holocaust and what's yeah. about to happen. And I remember seeing that. I think I lost it. Uh, and I left the theater. And for the next 30 minutes, I was with a friend. I couldn't talk. I was mm-hmm. just so sort of pulverized by, by what I had just seen. And so that just got me. Well, let's now move on to our topic. And this is exciting because we are talking about what you've written about in your book, The Great White Way, Race and the Broadway Musical. And this is the second edition. So the book has, uh, when did it first come out? Came out in 2014. Okay, so this is kind of an updated version. It it is, Um, it's really exciting. Uh, I had, something I guess not all authors get to, to um, uh, witness or go through, which is that the first edition actually sold out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it did really well. Um, it, it was bought not only for, for classrooms and libraries, but, but musical theater fans were buying mm-hmm. this. 
Um, and the first run sold out. They were actually printing it on demand at that point. Um, and so I went to the press and I said, can we actually just do a new run? And they yeah. said, sure, um, do you want to update it? And uh, I said yes for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them was right after the book came out, uh, Hamilton opened. Mm -hmm. And everybody was saying, well, what do you think about Hamilton? How does it relate to the th uh, things in your book? And so this uh, edition gave me a chance to write about Hamilton, the Book of Mormon, and to also revisit some things I had already written about. Right. Great. And uh, before we get into the, the topics of the book, what, um, what inspired you to write this book? So the book was really in process in, in for many, many years. It's not that it took long to write it, but it was just... The idea came back actually when I was in grad school. Mm -hmm. um, I went to UC Santa Cruz where I was studying American literature and American culture. And I was in this uh, seminar with um, Angela Davis. Mm -hmm. uh, amazing. Yeah. And it was a study on critical race theory. And it's a class that just blew my mind. And um, there's just so much that, that I learned from her. And it was at this moment when in the academy, uh, whiteness studies was also coming up at this time. Mm -hmm. And so after this class ended, uh, a friend and I actually, um, Angela Davis actually offered to do a private class for the two of us oh, wow. around whiteness studies. Yeah. I mean, again, just crazy, amazing, so yeah. lucky. So, we're, so here I am reading about whiteness studies and, and whiteness, and I've always been a musical theater geek. Mm -hmm. And as I'm reading this, I, I don't know, you know, th these just two, topics just began to come together in my head and I, and I began to see the musical in different ways and realizing that people had talked about race in bits and pieces before but not in the way that I want to talk about it yeah I think something that I think might be in, is interesting that I think also makes this book and my approach a bit different is that when people see the subtitle about race in the Broadway musical mm -hmm. when I and when I talk about the book and I go into the community and I ask people when you hear race and musicals what do you think about and people say South Pacific, they say Flower Drum Song, they say mm -hmm. Dream Girls, and those answers are totally fine. Yeah. Um, but what I think sometimes people inadvertently miss is that race has to do with more than just people of color. Right. And what it has to say about how are white people also very much much invested in, in race, mm -hmm. in, in racial privilege, in whiteness, um, and yet no one talks about whiteness, especially in the musical, as this site of, 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 of racial power. And so I think that's something that, that will really surprise people about this book, is mm -hmm. thinking about how whiteness as a racial category works inside the musical. Yeah. Well, the first one, the first musical I think you really get into in the book is Showboat, which is a favorite musical of mine, but I love how you go into um, how so much of Showboat is about performing race. Showboat's a show that I also love. It's just, mm -hmm. it's so famous. It's 1927. It's the show that for many people sort of starts the, what the beginning of the, what the American musical is, even before Oklahoma. Um, and it is a show about, it's a, it's a meta musical. It is mm -hmm. a show about theaters, about performers and actors. And so this, this idea of performance and how do we perform in our everyday lives is built into the show. Mm -hmm. and, and so a lot of what I talk about in this chapter, and there's so much you could talk about with race and showboat, right. <laughs> um, is the way in which the white characters and the African-American characters perform race very differently, mm -hmm. especially the fact that 
my take is that the white characters have a whole lot more uh, opportunities and, and choices in how they perform their race, mm -hmm. um, whereas the black characters are very much forced and trapped into these very stereotypical roles. Um, and that in and of itself, the fact that the fact that the white characters can choose how they perform race mm -hmm. is in itself a racial strategy that people don't always sort of see and make sense of. Um, and a lot of what I talk about in this book as a whole is how the musical is very much invested in uh, not only white privilege, but a term that I'm about to use, which I think might surprise some people, but white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I, people often think that white supremacy only has to do with neo-Nazis standing on a street corner shouting hateful things. It's that. But white supremacy is any ideolo ideology or, or stance that privileges uh, whites over other racial groups. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that could be economic, that can be social. And in the case of Showboat, it's, it's, a, it's a way of, the fact that they have this agency to perform their lives in a way that the black characters don't is, is an aspect of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I remember you talking about Ma the character Magnolia, how she's able to perform with the with Julie and the mm -hmm. and uh, perform those songs. Uh, Can't help loving that man. Mm -hmm. And uh, when she comes back uh, in the second act, and she kind of gets that job with that was was Julie's. Um, how she's able to just go into those places. Exactly. Um, in the, so the songs themselves, here's where the show gets really interesting, is this sort of these meta moments. Um, I mean, the first act uh, in the pantry scene when, um, when uh, Queenie and Magnolia and um, uh, Julie mm -hmm. sing uh, Can't Help Loving uh, That Man, uh, the song itself is sort of, it's coding, you know, if you know that song, mm -hmm. the show basically says, oh, only the African-American characters are supposed to know that right. song. How, why does Julie know it? Yeah. So, so the songs themselves are racially coded. And then um, uh, in, the, in the second act, when, uh, when Magnolia, uh, I think that's the song she's singing, um, in yeah. the second act when she's auditioning, and the, the person who she's, she's trying out for says, can, can you rag it up? Mm -hmm. By which she's saying, can you make it sound more black? Mm -hmm. And she does, and she can. Yeah. And the point is, as a white performer, she's allowed to, to, to sort of change what her race is in the moment mm -hmm. to allow her to take advantages that right. other people might not have. Right, right. And I guess you see that in music, a lot of genres of music. Um, well, it's how we get into this whole question yeah. about cultural appropriation and right. who gets to control um, uh, either certain songs or types of music. Um, and this is not unique to the musical. This is right. in lots of different art forms and, and musical styles. But we're, at, but we're seeing it actually in, in Showboat itself. Right. I mean, the miscegenation scene is, is not a song, but it's a pivotal moment. Of, and it's you know, t also talking about performing race as well. Yeah, the, the miscegenation scene, this this moment, which this term for some miscegenation, uh, which was once illegal, which um, uh, uh, 
uh, a black and a uh, individual and a white individual could not legally get married. Mm-hmm. Um, this plot point in which Julie and uh, and Steve, uh, Julie uh, is uh, part African American and has been passing as white, uh, and she's married to Steve, and uh, this is found out and they're forced to leave the showboat. Um, but this whole scene, this confrontation where race is played out on, it's, it's literally played out in a theater on the stage. Mm-hmm. And you have an audience watching it. And so race, race is, is made theatrical. Yeah. And it's just, again, to me, it's, it's just fascinating how um, uh, Oscar Hammerstein, the librettist and, and lyricist, and, and Jerome Kern are, are um, you know, using the forms of theater itself uh, to to engage with race. Yeah, and I one thing I thought was so interesting that you were talking about in the book was <clears throat> things that kind of unite groups of whites of white people into whiteness. And in Showboat, it was that whites are able to perform uh, whiteness and do this and switch that kind of unites them. Um, and then you can. Then we move into the other musicals you talk about, and we see that theme kind of like played out. And the next show I think that you talk about is Oklahoma. Oklahoma is such a, a fascinating show, and um, I mean, even to sort of take a step back for a, a minute. So the majority of shows that I talk about in in this book are, even if you put race to the side, are all landmark and important shows for a variety of reasons. Showboat mm-hmm. is some ways like the first major musical. And then we jump to Oklahoma, which is often considered by many to also revolutionize mm-hmm. the musical um, format um, by Rodgers and Hammerstein. And so I, I think it's interesting that each of these shows, um, I look at West Side Story and A Chorus Line, that not only are they changing what the genre of musical theater can do, but they're doing it like all, they're all doing it using race, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's significant. I yeah. think in part, among other reasons, it really does show how central racial issues are to the American story, the American narrative, mm-hmm. um, of which these shows are, are are concerned with. In Oklahoma, it's a show. Here's a great example of a show that when I tell people, "Oh, it's a show about race," and people always give me a funny look or they scratch right. their heads and they say but th- there are no people of color in, in Oklahoma. And, and if a very traditional, first off, if you're talking mm-hmm. about a very traditional production, typically there aren't. It's often cast um, uh, with all white actors, although, and I talk about this in another chapter, there have been a number of productions in recent years um, with multicultural casts mm-hmm. uh, and multiracial casting that's, that's really interesting. But, but going back, let's say, to the original production, people say, what does this have to do about race? And yet we have to really remember what Oklahoma is about and when it's taking place. And I always ask this question, people, people think, um, they think it's a trick question. I say, so where does the musical Oklahoma take place? And people look at me and they say, (laughs) it takes place in Oklahoma. And I say, it doesn't. And this is, it's, and I'm not making anything up here. If you open the libretto to Oklahoma and you look Mm -hmm. at the very beginning, it takes place in Indian territory. Mm -hmm. And if we remember where the show goes at the very end, it's not until the end when, Curly and Laurie get married, that uh, this area where they've been living, that Oklahoma becomes a state. So the question is, or the issue is, the show takes place in Indian territory, 
but where are the Native Americans? Right. And we never see them. And yet, this show is very much about building community against, I would say, an unseen uh, threat, an unseen um, uh, uh, presence. Um, and, and the show's asking these questions about, about land and territory. I mean, the, 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 the title number of the show, which comes at the very end, the characters are singing, we know we belong to the land, right. and the land we belong to is grand. And, but to me, it begs this question of, wait, you belong to the land? Wait, there was nobody else out here? Right. Where, whose land is this? And of course, this is, again, as even the show says, it's Indian territory. And um, so I think by, by sort of looking at the context, we get a very different sense of, of the racial issues in this show and how community is formed. Right, right. Um, one thing I kind of got from the most recent production, which um, was felt very bare bones, was just that made me feel like there aren't that many people out here. <laughs> like they're, you know, and like I see, like I, you know, my middle school did it when I was in um, elementary school, so I saw that, and of course that had like a huge chorus, and you know, it seems like it was a whole big town of, you know, of people, and when you see like. You know, as this a smaller production like the recent revival, it's just like, it just feels like there, this this small group that's out here. This production wanted to sort of uh, excavate those almost sort of primal uh, animosities that are mm -hmm. that are happening out on the frontier right. between different people. When I I think you put it well that there's. Um, it's a small group sort of fighting against this, the, the wilderness, trying to tame it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a lot of what Oklahoma's about. Yeah. Yeah, and that, uh, as you say in the book, that kind of unites them as the white, the whiteness, <laughs> the white group of, of people, mm. regardless of how, you know, the show is cast, but mm. um, against this, this unseen threat of the, the Indians. Um, and you also talk about Annie Get Your Gun. So there's a chapter that puts Oklahoma and Annie Get Your Gun together, um, and it's uh, the shows themselves are only three years apart. Oklahoma's mm -hmm. 1943, and uh, Annie Get Your Gun is 1946. And I sort of look at them at how both of them are dealing with the um, uh, dealing with Native American figures. In Oklahoma, I talk about how even though these individuals, the Native Americans, are unseen, mm -hmm. that they're still very much present in the show. Right. But Annie Get Your Gun, among other things, is what happens when Native Americans actually show up. And, and Sitting Bull actually you know, is a major character. And there's this very contentious song, uh, I'm an Indian too. Um, and uh, both shows are sort of looking at Native Americans in this case in the 1940s, from different uh, sides. One, I would say, as this unspoken threat, but the other, um, more sort of vaudevillian mm -hmm. um, comedy, uh, at times ethno-stereotyping that's happening of, the, of Native Americans um, uh, in that show. And uh, so it's interesting to sort of see how different shows are playing with these figures at a, at a given moment in time. I want to kind of skip ahead um, to 42nd Street. <laughs> mm -hmm. We'll go back. Mm -hmm. But um, just because we're talking about um, kind of invisible whiteness, 
it's kind of like when you do like a, a drawing and there's like the negative space and <laughs> like the where you like don't think about that usually but then when you're drawing it's like part of the mm-hmm. part of the drawing that you have to consider um, so that was that was an interesting way of looking at all these shows like this this uh, whiteness that we're kind of conditioned to see as this like negative space that's like normalized invisible invisible yeah. and I would say it's even more than just how we're conditioned to see art it's how it's how white people are conditioned to see the entire <laughs> yes. world no I, I mean I'm not being hyperbolic about yeah. this it's um, whiteness is is considered to be what is quote unquote normal mm-hmm. what is what is invisible it just it just is and what I talk about is that uh, whiteness um, the, the power of whiteness in many ways comes from the fact, this is going to sound uh, contradictory, is that it doesn't announce itself at all. Mm-hmm. By just sort of being, it maintains its, its, its power. Yeah. Um, uh, of, and the sense of superiority and the sense of privilege mm-hmm. um, that, that white people enjoy. There are a lot of steps to combating white supremacy, but I think the very first step, the very most basic step, is understanding and acknowledging that whiteness is, Mm -hmm. that there's a power to it. Um, And then once you can sort of acknowledge that, then you can begin to sort of think about, well, how can I try to begin taking um, responsibility for advantages that I have? How can I um, try to dismantle it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and this this we see this in the musical as well because yeah. if we just assume that race only has to do with people of color, we don't see the ways in which these sh- these shows that seem oh they're just race is sort of normalized that it actually has to do with whiteness too. And in the case of Forty Second Street, people always get thrown when I say oh Forty Second Street is about race, mm-hmm. and and part of that is you know. So what's this show about? It's about this young woman, Peggy Sawyer, from Allentown, Pennsylvania. And she's a chorus girl. And she, through a whole bunch of things that happen, she's very talented. And just as we think the show is going to close because the leading lady has hurt her ankle, she's going to save the day and, 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 and make it work. Um, but as I, I say to people, you know, there's been no, as far as I know, any major production in the U.S. or anywhere else where Peggy Sawyer has been played by an actress of color. Mm-hmm. And so what does this mean that, you know, well, you could work hard and have talent, and therefore you're going to become the next star. That's what the show's about, right? If you have right. talent, you're going to become the next star. But that's not entirely true. That The caveat to that is that if you are white, then you have those options. But if you're a person of color you're not even really allowed in the room to audition. Right. And that's something that we sort of have to take a step back and consider. Right. And I, you also talk in that chapter about kind of like a, a nostalgia, a white nostalgia, because the show, 42nd Street, not the movie, but the show came out in 1980, I mm-hmm. think, and as kind of like a, a throwback to the 30s, I position the musical from 1980, not only is it a throwback to this earlier time period, mm-hmm. which yes, was very white, um, but what's going on in 1980? So these are the Reagan years, mm-hmm. and the show ran almost the entire, excuse me, the, the, the show ran for 
the entire uh, two-term presidency of Ronald Reagan. And the 80s were this time when affirmative action was coming into being. And affirmative action, among other things, is saying that, oh, we need to give uh, extra benefit or advantages to people of color who, and this is um, to give them a leg up. And were, the opponents were saying, well, you're giving unfair advantages to people who haven't earned it. Mm -hmm. You have to earn things in this society. You have to have talent and work hard. Um, that's often what the white folks are saying. You know, right. why should I give you know advantages to anybody else? Not realizing the benefits and advantages that they have as white people. Mm -hmm. And so 42nd Street is totally, when you think about it, anti-affirmative action. It's saying anybody, I shouldn't have to give special benefits or treatment to anybody else because if you're talented, you'll, you're just going to earn it. Musicals, like all cultural works of art, are reflections of the time periods in which they're created. And, and I think that becomes pretty apparent as I go decade by decade, show by show, mm -hmm. again, from Showboat in Oklahoma and West Side Story through all the way up through Hamilton, really show how these, how these works of art are reflections, well, both reflections of what's happening in their time period and also shaping themselves how mm -hmm. we think about uh, race. Yeah, well, let's talk about Hamilton. While it's amazing the ways in which, on one hand, he had this idea to have uh, uh, actors of color play the founding, the traditionally white founding mm -hmm. fathers, roles in which they typically wouldn't be cast in. Right. At the same time as, and I'm not the first to, to argue this, um, ultimately this is still a story about white founding fathers. And as other people have said, um, you know, many of these white founding fathers own slaves. Right. Um, there's only very little passing mention about slavery. I mean, this show takes place during, you know, revolutionary, uh, uh, you know, early America. Right, when, when slavery was... All over the place. Over, yeah. I mean, Hamilton's family, his wife's family, owned slaves. Yeah. Um, and the show doesn't go there. Um, and yet, in many ways, actually, Hamilton is very much, believe it or not, like 42nd Street. Mm -hmm. um, the one of the most famous lines in Hamilton, uh, which people know if you're in the theater, it always gets crazy applause, <laughs> um, is when, I think it's the uh, Marquis de Lafayette and Hamilton, they, they say, you know, uh, immigrants, we get the job done. Mm -hmm. And the audience always goes crazy. And this yeah. was really happening, especially when things at the border were happening under Trump and the travel bans. Um, but what that actually plays into this mythology that America is the land of dreams and hard work and that if you're an immigrant, you can come and build yourself up and, and become a success. And that's the narrative that Hamilton, the, the show wants to create around Hamilton. It's also the narrative that Lin-Manuel Miranda sort of has created around himself, that right. his parents came from Puerto Rico, he himself grew up uh, in the Upper West, uh, upper, uh, Washington Heights area, mm -hmm. um, and has really made himself, as we know, into this major um, figure. But the thing is, if we consider the show in light of slavery, slaves were not immigrants, right. and they did not have the same chances that immigrants um, did in this country. And so we really have to take a step back and say, what what is this show? What is it sort of really about? What's it, what opportunities is it talking about? Right, and I think you also mentioned just like that, you know, Alexander, Alexander Hamilton was, you know, he came from the Caribbean, but he was white. And then it kind of gets into the whole like white immigrants versus darker immigrants and how we treat uh, 
those two groups differently uh, and just in terms of what opportunities are available to them and how Alexander Hamilton was able to move up and advance uh, because of the fact that he could just blend in. It's all exactly so. It's all those things. And it's even more than that. It's, it uses the case of, of exceptionalism, by which I mean, in the case of Lin-Manuel Miranda, you would say, okay, here's uh, a person of color who worked really hard mm -hmm. and took up all these, you know, used his genius and, and, and talents. And look, look what he can do. If, right. if he can do it, the sky's the limit. And, and it's interesting that so many both, this is a show that actually Democrats and Republicans really liked. Um, and Republicans, my sense is that liked it because it said exact what I just sort of said. As long as you work hard, it doesn't matter who you are, you mm -hmm. too can achieve the American dream. Right. But that really looks, that really overlooks the fact that we're focusing in those cases on the exceptions. Mm -hmm. the, the, the people of color, the, uh, who were the exceptions to that rule. People also talk about, you know, this show came up also during, this is during the Obama presidency. Right. And Obama is another exception that yes, he became president, but how many uh, African Americans in this country have are not even going to become close because right. of racism to achieving what he did? Right. It's a three-hour show. It covers a lot, it covers and I don't. I, lot. I, that's yeah. the thing. I, I I don't want to say that. that yeah, I don't want to hold the show so much for what it you know didn't do. But in looking at what it does say, mm -hmm. we do have to take a step back and right. It bring it brings up these questions yeah. that are good to address. If the show's not going to address them, then we should still address them. Yes. In your book, you also talk about uh, whiteness as broken down into ethnic groups, um, and how that kind of that kind of plays out in various musicals, um, such as West Side Story, uh, with the the Jets, and how they're actually kind of the white group, but they're actually made up of all these ethnicities that kind of come together and form this, this white uh, group of, uh, a white gang, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as I, as I mentioned earlier, each of these shows is coming out of the cultural moment in which they were produced. And the 1950s, the, the late 40s into the 1950s, we're seeing another shift racially in the US. Um, in the first part of the 20th century, and, and many other uh, historians of, 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 of whiteness have talked about this, and I'm oversimplifying on purpose, mm -hmm. but um, who was considered to be white was different than, let's say, particularly nowadays, who's considered to be, to be white. In the first part of the 20th century, we're, we're typically talking about Anglo-Saxons, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant mm -hmm. wasps. Um, and immigrants, Jewish immigrants, Italians, Irish immigrants, um, people who today are often considered to be white, at this early point in the 20th century were not. Right. Um, they were, it was, a, it was a different sort of type of, of, of whiteness that they, they weren't necessarily in the same group as, let's say, African Americans, but they were not part of this Anglo-Saxon majority. And what's happening as the, de as the century goes on, again, especially after World War II, is that a new line is forming. And these once marginalized white ethnic groups, Jews, Italians, Irish, are now going to, for the first time, really become part of the white majority 
and the line that will be drawn is between this white majority mm-hmm. and all people of color. Yeah. And that is a lot of what West Side Story is about because when people say, oh, it's the, the Jets are this white gang, well, they are, but again, if you look closely at what Arthur Lawrence calls them, he, call, he in the very beginning of the, the musical, he says they are an anthology of, I think, an anthology of what is called American, mm-hmm. more or less his words. Um, and his point is that these are folks who not too long ago would not have been considered white. And yet through these shifts that are happening, they're this new sort of gang. Mm-hmm. And the sharks, who, by the way, we always have to remind ourselves this, are also American because right. Puerto Ricans are American, um, <laughs> are considered this new enemy. Yeah. Um, but it's part of these fascinating shifts that are happening with whiteness itself in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and then you also talk about The Music Man came out same year as West Side yeah. Story, but is very different in dealing with uh, the whiteness and ethnic groups in, in this Iowa town. So it's... People often forget, first, as you just mentioned, that... Music Man and West Side Story came out the exact same year. It also often shocks people that the Music Man beat out mm-hmm. West Side Story for best musical that year, um, inc- including uh, it also uh, won best music and some score. Um, it, it's not that uh, West Side Story received much more mixed reviews than people member. Mm-hmm. It wasn't actually until the early 60s when the film version came out that the show really began to become the classic it's considered today. But the point is, while there's some people who did like West Side Story when it came out, and maybe obviously so, um, there are a lot of critics who ha- sort of hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought, here is this really violent show about gangs, and then, then you have the music man about, oh, it's it's nice white people in <laughs> Iowa at the turn of the century and there's a marching band. Um, it's not sort of surprising that this very um, quaint mm-hmm. uh, uh, picture of, of, of America that's very, it was very apple pie. Yeah. The show takes place over July 4th weekend. It had all these red, white, and blue flags and banners in the production. It's not surprising that that is what one at that moment. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Tommy Gillis in the in that chapter, and I've always been kind of interested in his that that character's ethnicity mm-hmm. in the show. It's the only, it's really like the only ethnic character mm-hmm. in. Well, the Perus, the Perus are right, Irish, uh, right, which you don't think about now because we, they're they're not. Well, they're, but they're also ostracized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Right, which says something. I mean, yeah. it's interesting. So Tommy Gillis. And the Perus are both sort of kept out on the fringes mm-hmm. of, of, mm-hmm. of of River City, right? For different reasons. Mary, uh, the Perus maybe because there's this I think that maybe Marion was involved with some illicit affair with Miser yeah. Madison. Gossip, the lots guys. of gossip. There's lots of yeah. gossip. Um, but it's interesting that they are integrated into the community mm-hmm. at the end. And Tommy Gillis is this unusual name, D J I. Uh, uh, L-A-S. Mm-hmm. Um, when I looked it up, it's, it's Czechoslovakian. Mm-hmm. I uh, think he's supposed to be from, his family's Lithuanian. Um, I don't think they, have, they don't actually ever say it, I mm-hmm. think, but we know that the mayor says he, he sort of lives on the other side of the tracks, the, yeah. that, that bad part of town. He's, I think it, his father's a day laborer. Or he's a, right. Yeah. 
So there are these insinuations yeah. uh, about Tommy Gilles and his family uh, that are being made that, that aren't explicit. And yet, it's through the power of marching bands, I'm not kidding mm -hmm. here, that Tommy Gilles and the Perus, they could all become part of the same nice community. Right, right. Yeah. It unites everybody. It unites everybody. Um, but it kind of, because of these ethnic groups nowadays are just considered white, when I see the show now, I don't think of the Perus and Tommy Gilles as, as a different race or outsiders mm -hmm. as much because they're kind of just considered white people now. In a chorus line, jumping ahead <laughs> to the 70s, you talk about um, how ethnicity and race play out in that, which I had never thought about before in regards to that musical. So again, you have, here's another fascinating moment in, in American racial history and cultural history. So the 70s are, an amazing decade, I mean, beginning with the late, the late 60s, but what's going on? You have uh, uh, a feminist uh, and, and, and women's movement happening, you have gay rights, black power, and mm -hmm. it's also this moment in which ethnicity, so on one hand, if, if in the 40s and the 50s, these ethnic groups like in West Side Story, um, the Irish and Italians, are becoming part of the white mainstream, in the 70s, while they're still white, mm -hmm. they're also for the moment taking back and saying, but I'm also a proud Italian or a proud Jew or mm -hmm. a proud Irish man or woman. Right, um, you, weren't, you weren't like hiding your identity or trying to assimilate anymore. Well, it was sort of both. Yes, mm -hmm. they weren't hiding it, but it was a sort of thing where, again, here's white privilege mm -hmm. where they could, um, as someone describes, they could sort of turn their race and ethnicity on and on like a on and off like a light switch mm -hmm. um they could be they could be white when they wanted to but they could also say but i'm i'm also ethnic and sort yeah. of take on the the wonderful cultural specificity um of it right but but people of color don't have that that luxury um mm -hmm. that yes there are cultural aspects to to um uh being african-american asian-american but they can't turn off their race right. in the same way I think that white people can. Um, and anyway, so a chorus line is very much, um, if you think about it, it's made up of this crazy patchwork quilt mm -hmm. of, you know, there's a Jewish character and I think two Italians and uh, two Hispanic uh, mm -hmm. uh, characters and, and uh, fewer gay. And there's just all this stuff ha happening. And what's interesting is that if you really think about chorus lines, I'm even talking today, most chorus lines, they are so white. Mm -hmm. And yet, a chorus line, the show, involves a very diverse patchwork of people in which a chorus line, th these people sort of stand in or are meant to stand in for the, the patchwork of American society that right. is. And in that ways, it's also very much like 42nd Street and Hamilton, because it's what's it saying? It doesn't matter what your background is the best people, the most talented people, will get a job on the line. Right. So it's also feeding into that American dream, but yet in a different sort of context. Right, right. Um, and then uh, wanted to t make sure we talked about Book of Mormon, and I kind of liked how you talked about it, how it was kind of, the whiteness was in kind of the form of the show. Um, I think you had a line like, uh, about form versus content in there about it. Um, uh, 
sense how like the colonist behavior was kind of like the musical theater mm -hmm. form itself. Yeah. Look, Book, Book of Mormon's fascinating. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's about these missionaries. Again, though unspoken, they are white missionaries. Mm -hmm. Um, all the white the missionaries Which I've never in the show. About before. It's even the <laughs> casting call. They're saying we want we want Caucasian missionaries um, go to um, Uganda to mm. save the poor people there. Um, and the show is obviously you know it's a it's 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 by, you know it's by the creators of South Park who they everybody's a target for them. Yeah. Um, and on one hand, you look at the show and you say, ah, oh, well. Yeah, the, the, the Ugandans, they're, they're, they're stereotyped and they're, they're made fun of and their backwardness, but oh, look, the, those white Mormons, they're, they're equally dumb and silly. They think they're going to save the world. I mean, so everyone, everyone gets equally torn apart. But that's not entirely true because when you really sort of look at it, the, the, the framework of the show is built into the framework of the classic white American musical. And... And at the end of the show, um, he, at the end of the show, the, the format of, of the musical has not, has not at all been changed. Mm -hmm. um, that when the, when the uh, Ugandan, the black characters perform at any time during the show, they are always performing in what I would call the stereotypical genre of white American musical theater. There's nothing um, that, that, that comes out of quote unquote traditional African uh, music or melodies. Mm -hmm. And so the point is at the end of the show, whiteness just, it's still, it's undisturbed. Let's move on to our why is this so good section where we talk about a song from a musical and why it is so good. And we're gonna talk about Love Can't Happen from Grand Hotel. Um, and I guess we usually start the section with why you chose this song for Why Is This So Good? So I picked this song, I, I did think about, did I want to pick a song that was closely more tied to the book? I'm right. sure I could have. Um, but in some ways, I just want to take two seconds before I even go into the song and say, Grand Hotel is a show about race. It's about <laughs> race and, and, and social class um, and economics. Um, and it's very much coded, not, maybe not so much into this particular song, um, but it's very much coded into who gets to play certain roles in right. this show. Um, so it's, a, it's, I think it just continues to reinforce, remind us that almost every show out there is about race in one way or the other, mm -hmm. uh, even if it doesn't seem explicitly about it. Right. Um, this song, why is it so good? <laughs> uh, it is, this song, I, I, this song is a, is a, it's a battle. And I say that in the best sense. It is, um, it is complicated and tricky melodically mm -hmm. and range-wise. Um, and every, every time I see the show, and I've, uh, Grand Hotel has become one of my most favorite shows that I've grown to love over the years. I've also seen multiple productions. Um, whenever I see this moment in the show, Love Can't Happen, I, I, I always tense up and I, mm -hmm. I, I get... I sort of lean forward in my chair and I, I always wonder who's going to win the song. Is the song going to beat the performer or is mm -hmm. the performer going to conquer this mountain? Because unlike so much musical theater, particularly nowadays where it's very, um, not mainly for women, but for men as well, it's just very sort of 
belty, like just like mm-hmm. you want to pound out those the right. notes. This this song is this needs a traditional legit voice. Mm-hmm. Um, it is extremely lyrical. The song uh, range wise, so much of it just hovers in the upper register, E's and F's and G's, and then of course. It just it finishes on it's either an A or an A flat and it's mm-hmm. just held forever, and if you have a performer who can hit it out of the, the ballpark, it's one of the most glorious moments I think in, in, in musical theater, um, and yeah I I, I consider it musical theater's version of Nest and Dorma. Uh-huh, uh huh. Yeah. It's, it's very it's similar, a, right? It's it's uh, so famous that ending, right? And and that one I think it's a high B flat, um, mm-hmm. but this too, it's 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 just glorious. Yeah, um, I don't I don't know the show, but I did see the movie a lot growing up, <laughs> so I'm familiar with the story of it. But um, so I'm really just going like just from listening to the the song out of context. But what I kind of uh, took away of loving about just listening to this song was the leaps in the melody mm-hmm. um, and just the well, first just I guess starting with the fact that you have these verses or sections that mm-hmm. are ver- first very like fast uh, or I guess just more a little more patter mm-hmm. than the lyrical uh, chorus section right and that contrast is very really interesting and then the lyrical chorus happens and it's just this beautiful like melody that goes just up and down and all of a sudden a big leap and then down Mademoiselle, I have followed you everywhere, almost throughout your career. London, Vienna, Paris, I've admired you, hoping one day we might meet in this way. But I never thought I'd get carried away. Oh, I knew you'd be beautiful, but not so beautiful. Why am I talking this way? Can this be real to me? Nonsense, my boy. You knew she'd be beautiful, but not so beautiful. Love can't happen quite so quickly, not unless I dreamed you beautifully and sweetly. No, don't look through me so clearly. And it has what I love. Um, about these big leaps is that the the kind of upbeat on the um, on the is on like the highest note of the leap. So like you have the first chorus has the love can't happen quite so quickly, not unless I dreamed you beautifully and sweetly. And the and is the pick kind of like a pickup, uh-huh. but it's on the highest note. Yeah. And I just there's something about that that. Um, Maybe it's not like how you generally would set, you know, something like you'd want like the, the, the sweet on maybe the highest mm-hmm. note or whatever it is. But the end is like a little pickup that comes down over the, mm-hmm. the where it lands, um, which I just love. And then it happens again, even more so on the completely. Mm-hmm. It's just, just something about that type of leap, like, like we leap up, but then we come down just the tiniest bit onto where we're landing. Um, I just, I just love that. me so clearly, I might very nearly lose myself completely. 
Well, I think that's connected to the fact that the song is, um, it, it's it's deceptively fast. Mm -hmm. um, it, it might not. It's it's not a it's not really it's not a patter song so much, but just there's a there's an engine to it mm -hmm. um, because this character is uh, he's alternating between these sort of internal conversations like what's the right. what, what, what's a, what is this I'm feeling what should I tell her um, and then he then he's expressing himself and as the song builds it's he's trying to it's he's trying he's trying to both obviously express himself but it's it, how do I explain it it's not that it's getting out of control but it, it's growing it's mm -hmm. growing faster and bigger what is this I'm saying? What is this I'm feeling? Like I'm getting drunk, looking in her eyes. Overwhelming face, utterly appealing. Never mind the truth, never mind the lies, never mind a thought in the world except love can. I think one of the, the challenges I've, many, many years ago, I, I once sang this song, it is very difficult. <laughs> um, not just because of these high notes, right. but it's very easy to either um, to, to uh, speed through the song and, mm -hmm. and, and get off track because yeah. of how quickly um, it, it moves. And, it's, and I think it very much uh, uh, embodies what good, a good musical theater song does, which is that you know, musical theater operates, uh, I would say, on, on at least a couple of levels. You know, when a character can't uh, speak anymore, mm -hmm. they go into song. Right. And and this song, it's 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 rushing forward. It's it's going higher and higher until you reach that that big A at the end. Yeah. Um, because it because the the count the Baron can't mm -hmm. control his his feelings of love anymore. Right. And so that's I think what gives it this excitement. And is he since I don't know exactly the context of this? Is he seeing this woman for the first time or? So. Um, he, they've just really sort of uh, met, mm -hmm. uh, and he's been a fan. Right. And well, he's meeting gone, her. For well, this yes. Time. Well, he's meeting her because he's going to rob her. Uh, she has these these jewels that he needs. He's he's uh, he's in debt. He has to pay off some uh, uh, gambling debts, and so he, his plan is to go and and rob her. Um, but he's been a fan, and he meets her, and he's just blown away, away by her beauty and mm -hmm. and. And in this moment, he he feels love. Right. Um, that's why he's so he's it's so he's like surprised that that love is happening quickly. Yes, he's just taken taken yeah. by surprise himself at the yeah. situation. And you definitely feel that in the music. Yes. In the lyric too, it's mm -hmm. in there. This kind of when this show was early nineties. Uh, around then, yes. Yeah, it kind of has that. I don't know. I don't. I feel like this this song wouldn't be written in the same way today. Just like the, the way that it uh, is so lyrical and, um, and operatic. Mm -hmm. and it's something very old school. There's something very old school about this. Yeah. I mean, the show takes place in the 30s. Mm -hmm. um, and Yeston, so Yeston didn't write the whole score. This was one of, I think, six songs that he mm, came in later and he wrote. But um, Forrest and the other person, these composers mm -hmm. um, who've written Kismet of all and, oh. and other things of, of, uh, uh, were writing the, the, the score to this. And when it was, I think, out of town, 
the show needed more work, and Tommy Toon brought in Maury Estin, who we had worked with on Nine, mm -hmm. um, to really punch up the show. Yeah. And so these songs had to be, uh, had to feel as if they were part of the score that had already been written. Right, right. Uh, and that show, um, happily, uh, yeah, it doesn't feel, it's not, this is, uh, well, I guess it's sort of the same, same-ish time period. You know, whereas let's say a show like Les Mis mm -hmm. is feels very sort of 1980s pop, right. even though it's about what 1780s France. Mm -hmm. um, that Grand Hotel feels more of of its moment, and that's yeah. why from a from a singer's standpoint, the person who's going to sing this role, the role of the Baron, mm -hmm. needs to have real musical theater chops. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's just it's so difficult. And it's interesting and wonderful, I think, to see a song. That isn't ironic. Right. You know, everything today just feels so... Right. Oh, we're so jaded. Everything is so ironic and, and, yeah. and sarcastic. And and this is, this really is love. I mean, to, to this, this, this format, again, in the 90s, to yeah. have something that's just pure at right. this moment, it's, it's, it's why, among many reasons, Grand Hotel just oh, guts me. Yeah. Um, because it, there's so much raw emotion in it. Mm -hmm. oh, come when love comes, you know. And to our final section which is something wonderful so we just talk about anything we are excited about coming up in the musical theater world or want to give a shout out to so this show flying over sunset which seems to have come out of nowhere uh, entirely original we've got james lapine and michael corey and tom kitt um, writing about uh, aldous huxley claire booth loose and carrie grant uh, who are all use the drug lsd okay so let's take a step back I think this is either going to be so magnificent or a complete train wreck. <laughs> I'm really hoping for magnificent, but you have, let's face it, you have amazing, um, there are amazing actors involved with it, amazing talent, and it's just, it's not based on anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited for that. And I think the last thing I'm looking forward to is, I just stumbled on this the other day, they are putting, I think for the very first time, the 1936 version of Showboat onto Blu-ray oh. and DVD. Now. For most people out there, this might not excite you, but you have to understand um, the 1936 version of Showboat, um, which I had a sort of bootleg copy of when I would teach this show, um, is super close to the original uh, uh, stage version. It features Helen Morgan, the original Julie, mm. reprising her, her stage um, version. And of all, there have been multiple uh, versions of Showboat over the years. There are or at least uh, three different yeah, a lot of um, film, versions. film versions. But this one is really considered to be the closest. So it's a really great version. I'm so excited. There's going to be commentary. I think there's, they're doing uh -huh. those extra stuff around race uh, as extras. Um, so I'm really excited that it's going to be available for legit yeah. <laughs> on DVD. And I highly recommend, if you've never seen it, to uh, get yourself a copy. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a question or comment about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Follow us on Instagram at scenetosong, on Twitter at scenesong, 
and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.